Heavenly Father, we testify to the reality that you're here and that you're with us and that you're for us. Lord, our bold exploration of this life means absolutely nothing if we do not first anchor it to that truth, that you are Emmanuel, that you are God with us, and that you walk this journey alongside of us. You guide us into your future. And it, it not only defines everything for us, Lord, but it realigns it all and it shifts it all back into the way that you want things to be. And so, Lord, tonight, we give you permission to do whatever you want to do in the hearts and minds of your faithful children that are present here, uh, that your spirit would move in us and through us, that we would hear you clearly, that we would see you clearly, and that we'd all leave here transformed and changed because we've had an encounter with you, our Lord and Savior. And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And so tonight, here's kind of my main thesis. Bold exploration means we test the limits of what we mean by good news. When we begin to boldly explore this, this core value for us, this word gospel, what is it that we're talking about? And the bold exploration that we have um, invites us, perhaps even demands that we begin to test the limits of what that really is and how far can the love of God go when it's demonstrated in the gospel. And it's amazing because I feel like the Lord's kind of led me to this unintentional triptych in the past several sermons. I did one where we were talking about how faithfulness guides our bold exploration. Last week I was talking about the, the case for beauty being an integral part of our journey of faith. That beauty in many ways recognizes and is honest with the way the world is right now. But beauty also paints a portrait of what could be and what will be. And so beauty gives us hope in a very precise sense that leads us deeper into the realities of God. And so we have faith, and we have hope, and now we have love, which Paul says is the greatest of all things. And when we're talking about the gospel, of course, we're talking about the love of God. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to just kind of give some lenses that help, have helped me to think and to engage with this idea of the gospel that have begun to lead me down the right path of asking the right questions. Because if we have the wrong lenses when we talk about gospel, we don't ask questions at all or we ask the wrong questions. And it leads us to dead ends. But when we understand what we're talking about when we talk about gospel, the questions that arise out of that become the deeper questions, the questions of faith, the questions of pursuit that lead us in bold exploration and in, in trying to discover what does the gospel have to do with the way the world is today. And so I want to begin in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. So Mark, um, of all of the gospels, we think Mark is probably actually the oldest gospel. In your Bible, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, but Mark was probably the one that was written first, and many of us think that uh, Matthew, us, as if, you know, I'm like, I'm this theologian that's just like so professional when it comes to scripture, but many of us in Christendom think that Matthew and Luke actually use Mark as a source, that they were inspired by this gospel and they added into it the thing, their perspective. And it's amazing that we have these four separate stories that give these slightly different angles to the Jesus story. But Mark is kind of ground zero. It's the very beginning. It's the first one. And I like to imagine that this is Mark, a young man, and he's sitting in the presence of St. Peter, you know, kind of the first leader of the church, this man who walked with Jesus for three years, who became the rock upon which the church was founded. And Mark is writing down everything that Peter's saying towards the end of his life, to be able to preserve that story and to be able to hand it down from generation to generation to generation until it arrives in our hands. And you can imagine that Mark, as kind of Peter's writer and editor, is maybe even asking him questions and he's saying, okay, Peter, how do you want to start this thing? If we're going to start it in the beginning, what's the first thing that you want to say? that's gonna set the tone for the rest of the story, that's gonna give us the little indicators of what it is that we should be looking for when we engage with the story of Jesus. And this is how they decided to begin their gospel. The beginning, which is a great place to start, of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And there's three very key phrases in this that are so packed with meaning. It's easy for us to glance over them and just try to get straight into the story. But to do so, we would be missing the key that unlocks all of Jesus' story. The first is this, the beginning of the good news. 
In Greek, the word for good news is evangelion. It's where we get the, the idea of evangelism. It's where we get the word evangelist or evangelical. And it's something to do with the good news. And the interesting thing was, in the first century, the word evangelion was a proclamation of a military victory. Okay? So this is how the world worked in the first century that Caesar would send his armies to go and conquer the heathens, and once they conquered that place, that they brought about peace through strength, they would send back news to Rome, and there would be this proclamation of victory. The world is different now because Caesar has brought about peace. Caesar has conquered. Evangelion, this is good news. And it was that proclamation that invited everybody to start changing the way that they perceived the empire because it had gotten a little bit bigger and a little bit stronger. And so it's interesting that the very first thing that Mark and Peter want to say is they want to take this word from the culture about a military victory and they want to ascribe it to what God is choosing to do through Jesus. And of course, this is reflected in the second phrase, Jesus, the Messiah. In the Greek and the Latin, the word is Christ. Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, those are interchangeable. And what Messiah literally means in Hebrew is the anointed one. But more specifically, it was someone who was anointed to be a leader, to be the king. And so I hope you're already starting to see there's political implications to what Mark and Peter, how they want to frame the story. This is the dramatic proclamation of a victory through Jesus the king, and then finally, the son of God. Because in the first century, there was somebody else that was called the son of God, and it was written on all of their coins. This belongs to Caesar Augustus, the son of God. And the Roman Caesar was the son of God. He was the prince of peace. He was the one that was going to come and to put the world to right. And so you see, when Mark writes this very first line in giving this information about gospel, He's making a very dramatic and political victory speech with global implications of what he wants to say about who Jesus really is and what God is choosing to do through him. And so the good news is so much more than we've been led to believe. The good news is so much more than we've been led to believe. I constantly critique this idea of the simple gospel. And to me, it's not that phrase. It's not the phrase simple gospel that's the problem. It's usually how that plays out and how we play with it. So several years ago when I was running this ministry school, uh, one of the first questions I asked the students is, what is the gospel? If you had to foolishly try to boil it down into one phrase, what would the gospel be? And someone raised their hand and they say, Jesus died for your sins so you can go to heaven when you die. And I said, that's wrong. And then I got all of their attention. Because that's not the gospel. And I'm going to show you what we're talking about in just a moment. But oftentimes it's been boiled down in our modern Protestant society to be just this, Jesus died for your sins so you can go to heaven when you die. And here's the problem with reducing the gospel just to that simple phrase, because it's actually been influenced by three non-Christian ways of thinking. Ideas that have come from the outside that have infiltrated the Christian message and distorted our understanding of what things say so that when we read that first line in Mark about this is the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, we kind of glaze right over that and we begin to look for the part where it's just about us and it benefits our way of life. And the first one is this. Um, it is invested with Platonism. So Plato, if you remember from your 11th grade philosophy class, was this Greek philosopher, uh, and he had this idea that heaven was somewhere up there and earth was down here, and they're essentially, they're separate. And so heaven was the place of ideas and perfection, and earth is fundamentally corrupt. And how that is bled into our understanding of the gospel is that second bit, that heaven is some sort of place that you're going to go when you die. So essentially, you invite Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you bide your time for 50 to 60 years, depending on how long you're lucky enough to live, and then God is going to magically transport you up onto a cloud, he's going to give you this nice little harp, and you're going to get little angel wings, and then you're going to spend the rest of eternity like that, and that's what heaven is. And that is a tragedy. First of all, because that imagery is really boring, but a lot of that imagery is imported during the medieval era, that heaven is somewhere else. It's this infiltration of Greek philosophy of Dark Ages imagery 
that's made us think that, that heaven and earth are fundamentally separate things and that the ultimate good is for us to get to heaven and therefore there's nothing very good about this earth, about this place. The second is moralism. So we've got Platonism, the second is moralism. What we find a lot of times when, this, when the gospel has been reduced to Jesus died for your sins so you can go to heaven when you die is there's this big gap in the middle that gives us nothing about how we are meant to live. And what that very easily does for us is it makes us believe you have to behave yourself in order to earn the forgiveness that Jesus is offering you. You have to behave. You have to do it the right way. And so between the moment that you prayed the prayer and the moment you die, you've got to match up to it. Because all Jesus has done is wipe the slate clean. And guess what? You keep adding tallies back onto that slate. So then Jesus has to forgive you all over again and the cycle starts again. What we found several times in going down to Peru is, is engaging with a lot of people who have been spiritually abused by church institutions that thrive on this idea of moralism. And essentially it's this, you go to a revival Monday night, you hear the gospel message, you give your life to Christ. On Tuesday night, you come back because you have to go to church every night. And you come back and then you find out that if you have sinned, you have negated everything that just happened. And so you have to confess your sin all over again. And then Wednesday, you come in and you find the same thing happened because guess what? You probably sinned during that day. And so you're, you're faced with this shame and guilt because you can never match up to the standard that Jesus has provided. And it keeps people in this cycle of never feeling like they're enough, never feeling like they can do enough to earn what has been freely given to them. And unfortunately, moralism gives us a bankrupt form of grace because we believe that the real grace that's testified to in the scriptures, in the gospel, is too good to be true. There's, there's gotta be some sort of a catch. We've gotta do something in order to earn it. We've gotta behave right. And of course, then we begin to judge the people next to us for not doing it right because we're too terrified to look at our own lives and to see that maybe we're the ones that are falling short. And so the simple gospel is invested with Platonism, moralism, and the final one is paganism, which is like my favorite subject matter in the whole world. A lot of people don't believe that pagans exist anymore, and they do. They just have very, very different names. And this is where the pagan infiltration of the gospel happens. God is angry. God is angry with humanity, and he needs a sacrifice in order to appease his bloodlust. And that lie, that lie from the pits of hell has infiltrated the gospel story for over 400 years now that God is fundamentally angry. Yahweh is not that different from Zeus or Thor or any of these other gods that exist in the pantheon. God is fundamentally angry and you have to make some sort of a sacrifice in order to get his appeasement. It's like the angry drunk dad that's coming to take a swing at you and fortunately your big brother Jesus stands in the way to take the blow on your account. But this creates in us a schizophrenic God my dad lived through that reality. His father was an alcoholic, and they never knew when he was coming home if he was going to be goofy drunk dad or angry drunk dad. And my dad is the middle of five children, and he took frequent beatings for the youngest two. And that doesn't sound like good news. That doesn't sound like a gospel that creates a schizophrenic God and makes us afraid of the Father. We like Jesus, but we're afraid of the Father. And so that pagan idea of an angry God Needing blood appeasement has poisoned our gospel. Because unfortunately what we're doing is we're measuring God by our standards and our assumptions of what we think that justice looks like. Because you and I, we participate in Caesar's empire every day. We believe that if we fight a little bit more, if we can control other people a little bit more, maybe violence will eventually bring us to some sort of peace. And that's usually a reflection of our understanding of what we think that God is really like. And so when we reduce it to this simple gospel idea that it's just about Jesus dying for your sins so you can go to some place called heaven when you die, we end up with some sort of a combination of a personal self-help advice column and a 401k retirement plan. And that's the best that we've got when it comes to the gospel. And here's the crazy thing to me. If you want advice on how to live a better life, if you want self-help, go listen to Tony Robbins. He's a lot clearer than Jesus is. He is a lot more clear than Jesus is on how to live a fitter, healthier, happier life. 
But if you want something that's going to transform you and change you, then you begin to incline your ear towards Jesus. And we believe this personal self-help motive when it comes to the gospel. And it's about this, this disembodied place called heaven for too long. You know, I don't like to participate in debates on Facebook. That may come to a surprise to some of you. But a friend of mine, uh, several weeks ago, uh, he's a very progressive Christian. He began to ask questions about heaven and hell. And he was saying, here's kind of where I stand. And, and I want to see how have other people approached this thing. And it was very honest and respectful dialogue for the most part. But he was debating this guy on there, and I was kind of watching from a distance. I didn't want to get engaged. Some of those things aren't particularly interesting to me, especially online. Good Lord. But what I watched in this debate, this guy's going back and forth with my friend. And eventually this guy says, about the third reply, he says, if there's no such thing as hell, then there's no need for Jesus. And that was the moment that I felt like I needed to step in. I said, we need to be very careful. Because what you have set up with the gospel is that Jesus is a means to the end. Jesus is a function to your eternal salvation. And your eternal salvation must be the thing that's most important. And if you don't get that, then Jesus doesn't really serve a purpose. Jesus is expendable. And I think, unfortunately, because we've internalized this gospel, it's about self-help, it's about our personal salvation and nothing else, we've reduced Jesus to merely a function. And we need to move away from the gospel of self-help, of engaging with Jesus, of engaging with scripture, of engaging with church and saying, what is this going to do for me? We need to leave that behind. And we need to begin to enter into a theology that says, what is God's story? What is God doing in the world in and through Jesus? And how am I caught up in the midst of that? And that is what we're talking about when we're talking about the gospel. And so here's a few things that I have found particularly helpful. Number one, the gospel is a proclamation followed by an invitation. This is going back to what we're seeing in Mark chapter one, that the gospel is a proclamation of something, the announcement of a victory followed by an invitation that says everything has changed now because of what God has done through Jesus and you can get on board or not. You know, there's a very big difference between the front page of your newspaper and when you scroll to, to section D, page eight, and you read your horoscope. Those are very different things. The front page news is front page for a reason. It is a big deal. Something has changed in the world and it's so important, we're actually gonna print it in color even though printed media apparently is on its way out. But it's an announcement. This is what's happening in the world. Here's the facts. Here's what's going on. And the job when we engage with the front page of the news is then to go, well, what, what is, how does that, what's that going on in my life then? Because that's the thing that's happening. But when you and I engage with our horoscope, which I don't recommend, obviously, because I'm a Christian, but when you go to your horoscope, you're looking for advice, right? It's saying, well, the, the thing is over the thing, and there's a you know, a lady in the stars, and so you're probably going to meet somebody this month, maybe, I don't know, which is very likely. I think we all meet people pretty frequently. There's a 50% chance they're of the opposite gender. It's not a surprise. But your horoscope is merely advice. But the front page is news. You see, when we reduce the scriptures, when we reduce the gospel to that simple idea, it just becomes about good advice. And so we need to look at the big picture. And what is that big picture? God is rescuing that which has always been his. You wanna reduce the Bible down to one line? Try that one on for size. God is rescuing that which has always been his. And so the Bible is the story of God working through Israel and then working through Jesus, not just to save humanity, but to save all of creation. And when you think about the big story in that context then, we look back at the Old Testament and we see that the, 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 the main question that occupies Israel, the prophets, the writers, the poets, is when will God become king and put things back the way they're supposed to be? When's it going to happen? We read it in Lamentations, we read it in Ecclesiastes, we read it in half of the Psalms, we read it in the prophets, this big human question, when is God going to do what he promised he was going to do? Not just to save us, but to save all of humanity. And not just to save all of humanity, but to save the whole world, all of creation, and put it back the way that he intended for it to be. 
Because when we believe that small and simple reduced version of the gospel, most of the Bible is unintelligible. Most of the scriptures are relatively useless because they're not useful to help us find our personal satisfaction and salvation. So you can throw out the whole Old Testament. Revelation's way too confusing. Toss that out. You probably just need 1 John. Don't worry about 2nd and 3rd John. Just choose one gospel and throw the other ones out. And we just begin to reduce the scriptures to make them more simple so they can match our simple gospel. We step back and we see the whole story, the way that it's been laid out, of God rescuing that which has always been his. We begin to resonate with the same questions that we hear in the Old Testament writers. When is God going to be king? When is he going to do what he said he's going to do? When is he going to put things back to right? And that's what justice looks like. It's not retribution, it's not balancing the scales, it's about God rescuing all of creation and putting it back into the way that he originally intended for it to be. And so we recognize things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And time and again, the writers of the scriptures testify to the power behind the power. Because when we engage with all of scripture, if it's not Egypt, it's Babylon. And if it's not Babylon, it's Assyria. And if it's not Assyria, it's the Greeks. And if it's not the Greeks, it's the Romans. The face, the veil of evil is always changing, but the powers behind the power is always the same. And the most uh, perceptive of the writers and the prophets and the poets began to recognize this common theme, that there is a fundamental evil at work behind the scenes that's perpetuating these cycles of violence, that's propping up this empirical notion of how we create a world that has peace in it. And so what is this proclamation that we find in gospel? What is the announcement that we find in the good news I think it's in two parts. Number one, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And the little whisper that all the gospel writers are putting in this is, and therefore Caesar is not. Jesus was not murdered because he was a nice guy. All the gospel writers were not ostracized and martyred because they were just looking to give people good advice on how to live a better life. It's because they stood up on day one and said, because of what we have seen and heard and witnessed, we testify to the reality that Jesus is king and Caesar is not. The way that Jesus establishes himself as the Messiah, the vision that Jesus has for humanity and creation, that is the truth. And the way that Caesar or Pharaoh or the president, whoever it might be, is looking to order the world, that's not good enough. And the gospel writers, like those Old Testament poets and prophets, recognized that in the systems of the world, in the empire, power is accrued through violence. This idea in the Roman Empire of Pax Romana, peace through strength, that if we go in with a bigger stick, we can beat everybody up, and that's how we're going to create peace. But it keeps humanity in these cycles of violence that we keep thinking the bigger our sticks, eventually we'll be able to bring peace on earth. But the gospel writers had a dramatically different vision of what it looks like when Jesus is Lord that, that fights against those evils that prop up mankind, the evil of the enemy or the Satan, the evil of the flesh, the unrefined human being, and the evil of the world, the systems that continue to perpetuate and participate in violence. And you see, for them, saying Jesus is Lord. This is a revelation, a revealing, not a manufacturing. The gospel was not something that the early Christians had to create on their own. They were going out and they were proclaiming something, this new reality and saying, this is what God really looks like. This is what God really looks like. This naked rabbi hanging on a tree on the outsides of the city, that's what God really looks like. We didn't always know it, but now we know it to be true. And it was this revelation, this dramatic, empowering proclamation that everything is different now because God has chosen to act through Jesus. 
In the early church, the best language that they had for how they interpreted the cross was Christus Victor, or Christ Victorious. And I love this image because it, it kind of shows that in such beautiful detail. We've got Satan under the foot of Jesus. We've got the little snake with a little apple kind of dangling out of it. We've got all the angel babies that are like blow on air on Jesus, kind of keep him in, you know, uh, air conditioned because he's just too hot to handle. And this was all, all of the early church. The writers of the New Testament and the next several centuries of early Christians, this is what they pointed to as ground zero for how we understand the cross. That the principalities of darkness, Satan, the enemy, the flesh, the world, the power behind the power that keeps the violence going has been destroyed. But it has not been destroyed because God chose to come in with a bigger stick. God didn't conquer the world because he came in with his fists up and said, now you're really going to get it. I'm really going to put things right. No, it's because of the sacrificial love of God that passed through the violence of the world, the flesh, and the enemy, that God is able to save all of us. And this was central, too, to the way that Paul understood the gospel. We're looking at Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. When you were dead in your sins... And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. So we're already engaging with sin, the way that we hurt God and the way that we hurt one another, the way that we hurt ourselves. And that only leads us to a life of death. But God made you alive with Christ. This is not an image of a schizophrenic God where, where the Father and the Son are kind of duking it out over our eternal salvation. This is a co-conspiring of a Trinitarian God who is so in love with himself that the outflowing joy is extended to us and we are rescued and caught up into that beautiful love relationship. He forgave us for all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. That God gathered up all the sins of humanity into Israel. And then God gathered up all the sins of Israel into Jesus. And it's important because some of you are thinking, ah, yes, but in Romans 3. And if you read it carefully, it does not say God nailed Jesus to a cross. It says God nailed sin to the cross. Jesus was the vehicle that carried sin to the cross so that it could be killed. And this is the second part. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, the cross was the most brutal and humiliating way that someone could be tortured to death in the first century. It was notorious. You're stripped naked. You're outside the city gates. There was no greater place for, of shame than that. And you're, you're put up as a demonstration. This is what it looks like when you question the empire. This is what it looks like when you challenge the status quo. Don't do it. And it, it was this, this mockery of these people that were foolish enough to try to stand up against the Roman Empire. But what we find is that God takes that symbol of the cross, a symbol of shame, a symbol of brokenness, of being on the outskirts, and he inverts it. He turns it inside out, and it becomes the very symbol of victory that makes a mockery of evil. To say, you thought you were going to win by doing it the way you've always been doing it. But I'm going to pass through death. I'm going to pass through sin, and I'm going to come out the other side victorious. And so Christus Victor, Christ victorious, the image that we see of Christ on the cross, this is the one true king marching into his kingdom, proclaiming Jesus is Lord. I've told this story several times, but it bears repeating here. Uh, a couple years ago, my father was doing this series through Philippians, and they were talking about the different ways and the different lenses at which we approach Jesus, how we perceive him, how we interact with him. And he did this message on how Jesus is Lord and then gave everybody in the church this prayer. And he said, I want you to pray this prayer every morning for a month. And the person that had the most problem with it was my mother. Now, my mom is a badass alpha female. Some of you know her. She is an amazing pastor's wife. There's plan A, plan B, get back on plan A. She sorts out everybody else's life in their community. She's amazing. But I was talking to her after this month, and she said, I realized that I have a really hard time with Jesus as my Lord. And I've been a Christian for 30 years. I understand Jesus as my friend. I understand Jesus as my Savior. 
I understand Jesus is the revelation of God, but when it comes to Jesus as Lord, I have a really hard time with that because that means I have to let go of control. That means that I have to give over the right to define myself and other people, and I have to lay it at his feet. And I think the foundation of our understanding of the gospel begins by recognizing Jesus is Lord, and I am not and that I give myself over to something much larger than myself. Because Jesus is Lord as the gospel begs your allegiance. There's a new book that's come out, I haven't read it yet, but the proposition of it is that we need to re-understand the idea of faith instead of being about affirmation to be allegiance. That whenever we see the word faith, it's the allegiance to Jesus as our Lord and King. And I love that idea, and I think that brings us to the second half of this proclamation. Jesus is Lord, and his kingdom is advancing. His kingdom is advancing. And so if Mark is very much the place where we look for this imagery of Jesus being the Lord, then we begin to look at Matthew to understand what the kingdom of heaven really looks like. And so when I was engaging with these students, as I was telling you a moment ago, and, and they said, you know, Jesus, goes to, Jesus died for your sins so you can go to heaven when you die. And I said, that's not the gospel. We started here in Matthew chapter 4, and this is what we read in the 17th verse. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so what's happened is that Jesus has been baptized. He was consecrated through those 40 years in the desert. And now he's beginning his earthly ministry. And the very first thing that Jesus preaches is not the Sermon on the Mount, but this one line, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In our contemporary language, we would say, change the way that you think about everything. Change your lenses, because the new reality of God is so close that you can reach out and touch it. And that's the first thing that Jesus preaches. And so then through the Sermon on the Mount, every word and deed of Jesus goes back to that first line. This is what it looks like when the kingdom of heaven is advancing. So we skip down to verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Nobody's died yet, but we're already proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And so Jesus begins to demonstrate this is what it looks like when God becomes king. This is what it looks like when his kingdom starts to bump up against the kingdoms of mankind and take them over, not through force, but through radical, radical love. And the story culminates with this image of Jesus on the cross because the cross becomes the tangible, ultimate demonstration of the larger gospel message that God is rescuing what has always been his. I think the how of the good news, thematics. The how of the gospel, the good news, is as important as the what. And it's God's demonstration of sacrificial love that conquers sin with forgiveness and death with resurrection. If I had to boil down the gospel message into something, which is, again, it's a very foolish endeavor, but this is kind of where I would point people to. That it's God's demonstration of sacrificial love. Time and again, every word indeed of Jesus culminating in the image of the cross that conquers sin with forgiveness and conquers death with resurrection. And of course, Christ victorious is the solution to the very first problem that we have in the Bible. Many of you have read the story in Genesis of Adam and Eve, and you know that they walked with God, but they chose to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they're shamed, and God is heartbroken when he he finds out that they've disobeyed him and they've chosen to walk away. And so God curses them, not as retribution, but to give them a journey to come back to him. And he gives this curse to the snake. This is what he says in Genesis 3, 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike at his heel. This is the very first prophecy in the scriptures about who Jesus is going to be in Genesis 3. And it's an image of the son of man triumphant over the son of Satan. That Satan will strike the heel of Jesus. Satan will bring about death for Jesus, but he will be victorious and he will crush the head of the Satan. And that is good news. 
So gospel, good news, is this proclamation followed by an invitation. Say the world is different. The world is different now that God is on the throne in the image of Jesus. And so what is the invitation for us then when we're talking about the gospel? The invitation is for us to let the gospel affect every aspect of our lives. I think, unfortunately, again, this simple gospel message gives us this imagery of if you pray this prayer and you invite Jesus into your heart, then you're good to go until you die. But what that unfortunately does, it says, if you can commodify Jesus, if you can make Jesus small and compact and, heaven forbid, understandable, and then you can tuck him into this little compartment in your heart, and then you don't really have to worry about it from the rest of that point on. But what if it's actually the other way around? What if it's not about you and I welcoming Jesus into our heart? What if it's actually about us being welcomed into his? What if the gospel message is actually about us being caught up in the triumphant, radical, sacrificial love of God, that we find our place in him, that we don't try to control it, we don't try to manufacture it, but we give ourselves over to it. And these are kind of three places, I think, that kind of combat those ideas of moralism and paganism and Platonism that help us to understand what it means for the gospel to wash over and affect every aspect of our lives. Number one, it's both personal and cosmic. You see, your personal salvation, your personal relationship with God, God working in you, mind, body, spirit, heart, is tremendously important. I do not want to devalue that in the slightest. But that's not the end of the story. The theologian Karl Barth at the beginning of the last century was asked by someone, uh, when were you saved? And he looked at them quizzically and he said, 33 AD. And I love that because it's not about this date that I decided that I believed in this thing. It's about what God inaugurated on the cross and I'm just another person being caught up in that. And your personal salvation is so important to God. But cosmic salvation is also important that the, the farthest quark in the universe is not too far for the love of God to reach it, to redeem it, and to rescue it. That God is taking everything he's created because everything speaks to his glory and he's bringing it back into accord with how he originally designed it. That the whole universe, all of creation has been affected by sin and death. But God is working to undo all of the brokenness and to bring it back in to the way that he originally designed it. And so you are being saved into a larger story. You're being saved in this bigger thing that God is doing and has been doing since the beginning. So the first is personal cosmic. The second is heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. The Lord gave me this vision several years ago in worship, one that I've really held on to. And it was this recognition that what God is doing through the church is weaving heaven and earth back together. And that each one of us are another stitch that makes those two things more and more integrated. Because when we believe that heaven is somewhere else, someplace else, something else that we'll experience after we die, then we don't really have much of an opinion about what's going on here. And the, this blew my mind when I discovered this. There are 10 major sermons in the book of Acts. Not one of them makes the appeal to the gospel by using hell or the afterlife. Not one of them. Did it mean it didn't matter? No, because they speak about it later on. But nobody went out in the first century preaching the good news and used uh, this idea of hell or the afterlife to convince people to sign a contract today. When they talked about the kingdom of God, when they talked about the kingdom of heaven, they were talking about a reality here and now, something that God was doing here as he's animating and rescuing and redeeming the world. And the amazing thing about that, when we recognize it's more about the integration of heaven and earth being brought back together, is that it has something to speak to your, your past, your personal past, but also our historical past. It has something to speak to what we're doing today, and it has something to speak to the future when God finishes what it is that he inaugurated on the cross. Past, present, and future are all dramatically affected by the good news that God is now king. And then finally, worship and justice, worship and justice. And I think this is the piece that fights against all of those pagan tendencies within all of us. That God is putting human beings back into right relationship with himself. That's what worship is. 
Worship is you in thought, word, and deed choosing to acknowledge that Jesus is king. Whether we're singing songs or you're going about your daily business, whatever it might be, worship is you in continual acknowledgement that Jesus is king and that you are a citizen in his kingdom. And this is where I think a lot of times our, our liberal and progressive Christian friends go wrong because it's all about if we can just fix the world and that's pretty much the same thing. But then we're trying to build the kingdom on our own standards. And what, what happens when human beings try to build kingdoms is we just build more empires. If we live in a kingdom, we need to acknowledge the king. It's not good enough just for the world to get better. But we want humanity to be in right relationship with God, to commune with him, to worship him. And then that leads us to the second part where we're led into right relationship with one another. This is what we call justice. And it's not just about evening the the terms because when human beings try to perceive justice, it's just an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But we recognize justice through the eyes of God. It's about putting things back to right. It speaks into our relationships, into our marriages and our friendships, the way we raise our children, the way we treat strangers. It has global connotations for how we perceive people half a world away. Because we begin to look that justice is what love looks like in public. And once we have the lens of God as he really is in Jesus, then we go out and we make the cry for justice. And so what does it look like for us to respond to and then incarnate the good news of Jesus and his kingdom? That if Jesus is the incarnation of God, then his church, you and I, we become the incarnation of Jesus. We become the fabric of the kingdom. And it's not something that we create, it's something that we reveal through our action. Another amazing writer in the New Testament, John the Revelator, says this in chapter 12 of his book. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah, his king. For the accuser, this is the Satan, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. This is the fulfillment of that prophecy in Genesis chapter three. They triumphed over him. How did they triumph over him? With more violence? No, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Because the words and deeds of the saints reveal the kingdom to those who desperately need it. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And I love that image of how you and I choose to incarnate the good news of Jesus and his kingdom. And perhaps even if we bring it back to this idea that it's God's demonstration of sacrificial love that conquers sin through forgiveness and death through resurrection, then perhaps that's the calling for you and I, that we we are the forgiveness of God. We practice resurrection. Be the forgiveness of God. Practice resurrection. Last year, we did this series called Colony, looking at this idea that we are the colony of heaven. We're this little community that's in the midst of this foreign land, and you and I practice and participate in a reality for humanity that is the eventual destiny for our our entire species. And not only for us as humanity, but for the whole world. And so we become this prophetic witness because we live as if Jesus is king because we actually believe that he already is. Even when we can't see it, especially when we can't see it, we testify in thought, word, and deed that Jesus is our king. And rather than extrapolating more out of that, I want to tell you two stories that recently have so powerfully affected me when I think about this idea of how we practice being the forgiveness of God and practice resurrection. The first one is this. Many of you know our dear Mark and Shannon are getting married in a week and a day. Good Lord. I, I have had the honor of walking alongside of them in this as they've been preparing and even before that with their relationship and Um, on Monday, they went and got these tattoos on their wrists together. And if you know anything about them, these are two of my closest friends in the world, and they're absolutely amazing, and they're two of the most stubborn people that I've ever met in my life, and I love them. They're amazing. You can quote me on that. You can cut that out of the sermon, and we'll just transport it into the ceremony. Walking through this journey with them, these two self-sufficient, amazing, stubborn people, and seeing them learn how to not only create space for the other person, 
but to give themselves over to the other person because they're learning how to incarnate this reality that this is just a symbol for Christ and his church. And so they got these tattoos on Monday, these greater than symbols that when they hold hands, they're saying, I consider you greater than myself. I'm going to put you in front of me because that's how Jesus pursues the church. And it's this prophetic witness to the rest of us that this is what it looks like when God is king. This is what it looks like when God rescues and redeems humanity and begins to put them back into their proper accord, when we begin to relate to one another in the way that he created us to do so. And the rest of their lives become this symbolic demonstration to you and I of how Christ pursues us. That's what we're practicing in marriage. The second story is this, and this one's a little bit more difficult. I'm gonna show you a picture, this is the Trappist monk, Christian de Cherget. And de Cherget uh, grew up in a French military family. Uh, and he, during the Algerian War, and if you remember in the early part of the 20th century, um, Algeria was, uh, was a, a part of the French Empire. And he was stationed there in 1959, and he fought in the Algerian War. And there was actually a Muslim man that saved his life uh, from this, this gang. And the very next day, they found this Muslim, this Muslim man had been killed in the streets because of the kindness that he had shown to Christian de Chaget. And so this man goes back to France, and he decides because of this act of kindness, he's going to develop his whole life for God. And so he becomes a, a Trappist monk, and he feels called to go back to Algeria. So they station him at a, a place called Our Lady of Atlas Priory in Tiburine, Algeria. And he begins to serve there and love the community around him, love the Algerian people, continue to give them a space of safety and, um, and, a, and a place to engage in civil discourse. Um, and then many, some of you might be old enough to remember this, but in the early 1990s, there was a lot of upheaval in the country of Algeria. And uh, Islamic extremists began to, to come up and, and attack Christians and attack uh, people that didn't see things the way that they did, this kind of like, awful fundamentalist version of Islam. And early in the 1990s, there were several attacks specifically on de Chersey's uh, abbey. And in 1994, uh, he decided uh, to write a letter, and this letter became the, the letter of his death. And I wanna read this to you. So if you can just stand with me, please. And I want you to close your eyes. These are words of a man looking into the face of death. If it should happen one day, and it could be today, that I become a victim of the terrorism that now seems to encompass all the foreigners living in Algeria, I would like my community, my church, my family to remember that my life was given to God and to Algeria, and that they accept that the sole master of all life was not a stranger to this brutal departure. I would like when the time comes to have a space of clearness that would allow me to beg forgiveness of God and of my fellow human beings, and at the same time to forgive with all my heart the one who will strike me down. I could not desire such a death it seems to me important to state this. How could I rejoice if the Algerian people I love were indiscriminately accused of my murder? My death obviously will appear to, to confirm those who hastily judged me naive or idealistic. Let him tell us now what he thinks of it. But they should know that for this life lost, I give thanks to God. In this, thank you, which is said for everything in my life from now on, I certainly include you, my last minute friend, who will not have known what you are doing. I commend you to the God in whose face I see yours. And may we find each other, happy, good thieves in paradise, if it pleases God, the father of us both. In March of 1996, Christian de Chaget and 10 other monks were kidnapped by Islamic extremists and beheaded in May of 1996. And it was only after his death, it was only after his martyrdom that this letter was published. And the thing that kills me is that final line, I certainly include you, my last minute 
friend who will not have known what you are doing. I commend you to the God in whose face I see yours. Because that is a man who has so given himself over to the reality that Jesus is Lord and his kingdom is advancing that he can call the one who will eventually murder him my near life death friend. And he prays for him, he forgives him, and he hopes that he'll see him in paradise. Because this is someone who has chosen to incarnate the good news in his life, who aligns himself with God in Christ, who on the cross looks around him and says, Father God, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Don't hold that against them, but bring them into your eternal kingdom. And these two stories seem so disparate. But when I look at both of those, I see what it looks like to be the forgiveness of God and to practice resurrection. So what we want to do next is we put these paper up here with four different categories to begin to ask the question, what does it look like for us to respond and then incarnate the good news of Jesus and his kingdom? What does it look like for us personally to receive Jesus as, as our Lord? What does it look like for us relationally with God and with others? What does it look like in areas of health, not just our personal health, but health for humanity? What does it look like in areas of oppression where there's injustice reigning in the world? What does it look like in our politics, the way we choose to organize ourselves and value our fellow human beings? And I wanna invite you after I pray to come forward and to consider those questions, to begin to look into how do we incarnate the kingdom how do we choose to recognize Jesus as our Lord? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, we thank you for what it is that you have accomplished, not just on the cross, but through every word and deed of your servant Jesus. We thank you that he has shown us what you really look like. We thank you that you have chosen through Christ to be victorious over sin and death because through the cross you have offered us forgiveness and through the cross you're enacting resurrection as you bring back together heaven and earth. As you save us as individuals but you save us into a larger story. As you bring us back into worship of you and that you give us fresh eyes for what justice really means as we see the world put back together in the way that you originally intended for it to be. And Father, we're asking for that divine imagination that enables us to see how we might be the forgiveness of God, how we might practice resurrection here and now in the colony of heaven. Lord, your reality is so close that we, all we have to do is reach out and touch it. So Father, whatever you want to do in this space, we give you permission to move freely. Send your Holy Spirit to awaken us to your good news that we might be transformed by it, caught up in it, proclaiming its goodness to all that we encounter. And through us, we might see the kingdom advance in a world that desperately needs it. We pray these things in the strong and the blessed name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please come forward.